Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. The Fauci conversation is much more than a conversation of, of Fauci lied. Right? That's, that's not it. It's that Dr. Anthony Fauci may not have shared information that could have helped us make a decision and would have been better for America. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. To dig into that, I brought back Phil Kirpin of American Commitment, who's been going over the data on masks and on COVID and on, on strains, to talk about these emails and what it is we learned. Phil Kirpin scheduled to join us. Tony Katz, guys, good to be with you. What is it to be taken from Dr. Fauci's emails? This it wasn't a leak. I make sure we're clear about that. It's not a leak. It was a FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request. These emails that share with us things that were being communicated as COVID was, for lack of a better word, breaking. And what do we know? That there were conversations about whether or not any level of dollars from the United States had gone to the Wuhan Virology Lab, funding gain-of-function research, conversations about the possible engineering of data. In the meantime, we're seeing data on COVID, and you got to ask, not only are masks ever needed again, but exactly how much to the future uh, can we start uh, moving? Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N, on Twitter. Let's start with those Fauci emails. I see them as damning, but also possibly informative. Where are you on the emails you have seen from this FOIA request? Well, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. To me, what was uh, probably the most, uh, you know, sort of damning for Fauci was kind of the fire drill that he had with his staff with the uh, under the subject line important, where he kind of asked his staff uh, if it was true that they had funded the uh, Wuhan labs gain of function research. And uh, he sent this paper along from 2015 that claimed that they had. And his uh, staff person said, well, we didn't fund it directly, but, you know, maybe we funded it indirectly. And he said, I have tasks for you that you must do today. Call me immediately. And, uh, and there's some redactions as well. So we don't know all of that. But, you know, just fr- from what we can see from that day, it, it looks to me pretty clear that Fauci knew that, you know, the U.S. taxpayer money was going to that lab, uh, you know, through an intermediary. And I think that informs a lot of the other emails, the efforts to, uh, you know, cover up the fact that it very possibly came from that lab and to insist that it did happen naturally. Uh, you know, he had a pretty strong incentive to do that after he found out that, that we were funding it. And by the way, Tony, I don't think he knew before the fact that we were funding that lab because it seems he was surprised to learn that in the email. But he's certainly known it since February 2020. And, oh, see, I took uh, it. Hold know, on. Hold on. I, I took that a little bit fault. differently. Let, let, let me let me throw a devil's advocate at you, Phil, because it, this is exactly what Senator Rand Paul was saying. Two weeks ago, he told me we didn't fund anything. Was he surprised that possibly the U.S. was funding? Running this lab, or was he somebody saying, "Oh my gosh, is someone going to be tying this dollar back to me?" And it was more of a fear than surprise. Your take? Uh, I think it was both. I think it was both. That's just how I read it. Uh, he seemed to be. Uh 
you know, it, it seemed to me news to him. You know, you're reading it on a page. Who knows if I'm if if I got the correct impression or not? But that that's how I took it. Talking to Phil Kirpin of AmericanCommitment.org, as you go through some of these emails, what struck you as, wait a second, that is not what we were told? Well, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that's a little bit surprising in that regard. I mean, I think the, uh, t- to me, though, the email that was the most surprising, the revelation that was the most surprising, and I don't even know for sure, uh, you know, maybe it was a mistake or I don't know, but, you know, the, the email from uh, Peter Daszak, or Daszak, I don't know how you pronounce it exactly, the, the guy from EcoHealth Alliance, which was the uh, intermediary group through which taxpayer money flowed to the Wuhan lab. Uh, He had this email where he uh, thanked uh, Fauci effusively for going on TV and saying, you know, it was natural, it didn't come from a lab. And there's a whole paragraph of that that is redacted, uh, that is blocked out. Um, But it is not redacted under the uh, FOIA exemptions that we typically see. You usually see a lot of four, five, and six exemptions. Uh, I had never seen a seven exemption before, so I actually had to look up what it means. And a seven exemption means that it is a law enforcement record that could compromise ongoing proceedings. And the fact that they had a seven exemption code on a paragraph in that email, uh, unless somebody made a mistake, that means there's a law enforcement proceeding underway, uh, which, of course, we don't, we don't you know, it, that, that's very surprising to me. Because certainly we haven't seen anything public about any law enforcement proceeding that might be implicated uh, by an email, you know, between Dashik and Fauci about whether it came from a lab. Well, I'll be keeping an eye on that because I'm staring at that email where uh, you have uh, Dashik, D-A-S-Z-A-K is the last name, saying to Dr. Fauci, from my perspective, your comments are brave and coming from your trusted voice will help dispel the myths being spun around the virus's origins. Uh, so it was a B-7A, each one of those in parentheses. We'll keep an eye on that. This whole idea of origins and how there were emails that said, hey, this this does have some markers of possible engineering, not saying that it definitely was engineered, and yet you had people like Senator Tom Cotton, you had others talking about leaking from a lab or other possible issues, and of course, they were all called conspiracy theorists. When we see people like Nicole Wallace being effusive in her praise of Dr. Fauci, you see some uh, emails from ABC people. I would never jeopardize you. Uh, CNN saying this is just these are just emails from a from a good Frank guy. We played politics with a virus, in my view, as opposed to working towards defeating a virus. In your view, as somebody who studies the data, not a doctor, just somebody who's really good with the data, understanding the data, breaking it down, being able to dig into the reports, if we had played less politics and engaged more in open conversation, could we have done America better than we did? Oh, I definitely think so. I mean, look, I think that, um, you know, the main concern, the primary principal concern of our public health officials at the beginning of this appeared to be... uh, you know, covering themselves, avoiding getting blamed for it. You know, that's really where they were focused. 
uh, when they should have been focused on understanding how it's transmitted and having effective uh, response. And instead, we ended up with a highly ineffective response uh, that was very, very costly. We destroyed a lot of businesses and jobs and uh, disrupted a lot of lives, including children's lives. And it was extremely ineffective because, you know, 100 million plus people ended up getting infected anyway. It really didn't stop uh, the virus in any meaningful way. And so I think we had sort of an incredibly bad response, uh, sort of maximum downside in terms of cost and very little, if any, benefit. And I think if they'd been paying more attention from the beginning to how the virus was being transmitted, which was airborne, something they denied for a year, uh, and focused on, you know, instead of locking everyone at home, said, do everything outdoors where it doesn't spread. And, uh, you know, you get well vent, you know, instead of masking people, ventilate the heck out of indoor spaces so there's fresh air blowing through. Uh, we could have had a much, much lower burden of this disease, uh, you know, in the year or so before we got the vaccine. And it's very unfortunate that instead of looking at the data and understanding it, because all of it was already available if we had been paying better attention, uh, you know, the, the guy who's supposed to be at the top of the whole response seems most concerned about uh, avoiding any blame or consequence himself uh, rather than anything else. Talking to Phil Kirpin on Twitter at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N, from AmericanCommitment.org. Let's get into data. Because this is where you play. And, of course, we saw Israel showing uh, that the Pfizer vaccine may have increased cases of myocarditis, uh, inflammation of the heart uh, in 16 to to basically 39-year-olds, really in that 16 to 19-year-old kind of space, which is going to cause more parents to say, I'm not so sure about getting my kid vaccinated. There's going to be a fight with schools. You retweeted a piece that there was a total of 337 kids that tested positive for COVID in the hospital in the whole country the week of May 21st. Do you see the value in vaccines for kids 12 to 17? You know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the vaccine is clearly net beneficial for seniors. And, you know, I think pretty much everyone agrees, which is why, you know, 85% of seniors have have gotten the vaccine. Uh, They've had high uptake everywhere. You start going down the age distribution, you know, 40, you know, 60, 50, 40, it's probably still a good idea. You get down to 30, 20 kids, it's a much tougher call because the acuity of the virus is so low in younger populations, especially in the pediatric populations, that you have to think about what, what are we preventing versus, you know, you know, even if, you know, let's set aside the more serious adverse events for a second, just the fact that you're probably going to be pretty sick for a day or two after that second dose in terms of, you know, fever and chills and fatigue and headache, uh, that might be worse for a kid than getting COVID because it's so low acuity in children. And so I think in my view is that um, it's fine to make it available. Uh, but we really should not mandate or require or make it a condition of school or any other activities for, for younger populations or especially children because it is a very reasonable decision, in my judgment, not to choose to get it in that age range. And you really aren't endangering anyone who's at a high risk because they themselves have all had the vaccine available to them. And so I, I think that uh, instead of having this, you know, this huge fight over do or don't vaccinate all the kids, we should take the freedom approach, which is to say, we'll, we'll make it available, but it's not going to be required. And, and you know, parents can assess. There are some children who are, you know, maybe who have 
cancers or other high-risk conditions where, you know, I think it would make sense for them to get vaccinated. Uh, but I, I think, by and large, uh, for most people, it makes sense not to vaccinate your kids. But, you know, I think your parents should decide that. I, I don't think that government or schools or anyone else should be deciding that. But we know they're going to play in, in that space. We know they're going to talk about wanting to keep kids in masks. The data keeps showing us, and we have discussed it, uh, that the mask, and even from Dr. Fauci's own emails, going back to that, maybe stopping what he referred to as gross droplets, you know, harsh, you know, big, uh, big, pieces, if you will, for lack of a better word, but it doesn't stop COVID. Something they knew from the beginning that a mask does not stop COVID. It stops something, but not COVID. Does this put an end to the idea of masks in schools or indoors or anywhere else in the foreseeable future? Uh, I really think it should. Uh, we've now got a tremendous amount of data. By the way, it, this is for, for, for almost all infectious diseases, certainly for influenza. It's, it's the respiratory aerosols from normal speaking, not from coughing or sneezing, uh, that actually causes most of the transmission. And so, you know, you, you, they're so small that these typical masks that you get, they, they just don't stop. Uh, you know, 99% of the aerosols are going to pass right through or go around. Uh, with these typical masks that are being used. And I think that's why you really haven't seen uh, much, if any, impact from them uh, when they're used in community settings. They just they, they don't stop much of the infectious virus, if any. And so, uh, you know, w- it, it's easy to say, well, you know, what's a little inconvenience, uh, you know, if you can stop. But, but it has no effect, and it's more than little, the inconvenience. I think it's considerable, especially for school children who've been asked to wear them all day long for eight hours. Uh, I think... Uh, it is an enormous uh, imposition, and it prevents people from being able to live normal lives. And I, I just think there was basically no benefit from it all along. Uh, maybe very, very, very limited uh, benefit. But at this point where the virus has receded to very low levels, uh, I, I would hope that we could drop them everywhere. But unfortunately, Tony, this is, this is becoming another one of these things uh, where it's become a political dividing line. And you look at the map of the country right now of where they have or don't have masks in schools, and it looks like the map of the country of where schools were open or closed six months ago. And it's the Democrat areas, the liberal states, and liberal uh, localities in states that leave it up to the localities, and some states are starting to prohibit them statewide uh, to not allow the liberal areas within their states to do it. But it really is, uh, it's just happening along political lines, which I think tells you how poor the scientific basis for it is. Uh, But unfortunately, for people who are in liberal areas, and I'm in one here, uh, it's it's not a great outlook for the fall uh, to have the kids having normal school. Phil Kirpin, AmericanCommitment.org, on Twitter, at Kirpin, K-E-R-P-E-N. Phil, I appreciate you taking the time. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. I've spent a lot of time talking about my pillow, and now Mike Lindell, he's done it again, introducing the new My Slippers. My Slippers took two years to develop. They ensure the highest quality and comfort. They're designed for all day indoor or outdoor wear. The My Slippers are made with quality leather suede and the exclusive three tier cushioning system. This combines layers of My Pillow fill, impact gel, and comfort memory foam to absorb impact and relieve pressure. Your feet will never feel the 
the same. Whether you prefer the moccasin or slip-on style, my slippers are available in a variety of colors and sizes. For a limited time, Mike is offering 40% off his new my slippers. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square. Enter promo code TONY or call 800-873-0758. And while you're there, take advantage of all the discounts on all the MyPillow products. The Giza Dream Bed Sheets, the MyPillow Mattress Topper, the MyPillow Towel Sets. You can only save 40% on the new slippers with the promo code TONY. That's MyPillow.com today. You don't have to miss any part of Tony Katz today. Solve that problem by subscribing to the podcast at Rumble.com. Rumble is a video sharing service like the Tube Guys, but they aren't playing around with demonetizing and deplatforming content they don't like. I'm on Rumble because Rumble.com allows me to be, well, me. Go to Rumble.com, search for Tony Katz, T-O-N-Y-K-A-T-Z, and subscribe today. That's Rumble.com. Search for Tony Katz and subscribe to the Tony Katz Today podcast. Enjoy it and share it every day. The Tony Katz Today podcast at Rumble.com. Weekends are not a time for politics or news or the craziness of the world. Weekends are a time for friends and family, pouring a well-crafted spirit and maybe smoking a luxurious cigar. Each week, Eat Drink Smoke reviews cigars and craft spirits and gives you news that will make you interested, not angry. Eat Drink Smoke with cigar aficionado Tony Katz and America's favorite amateur drinker, Fingers Malloy. The perfect complement to your weekend activities. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more at eatdrinksmokeshow.com.